41. As we continue our thought for the month of February, this will be our last message on these marriages in Genesis. And uh, we have seen a stained marriage. That's the marriage of Abraham and Sarah was a stained marriage because of what happened with Hagar. And I'm glad God overcame the stain. Amen. And then there was a strained, a strained marriage. And that, of course, was the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. It was strained because the children brought division into the home. And then last week I preached a little on a strange marriage. Uh, of course, the marriage of, uh, the marriage of Jacob was strange because he had two wives. Anytime you got more than one wife, that's a strange marriage. This morning, I want us to look a little while here in Genesis chapter number 41. And we'll begin our reading there in verse number 44. And the Bible said, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. I liked Joseph better. How about you? That's going, to be a, that's going to be a big old name tag, I tell you what. And he gave him to wife Asneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. In the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. He gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, laid up the food in the cities. The food of the field which were round about every city laid he up in the same. Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea, very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asneth the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God said, he hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Let's pray together. Father, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name that you'd help us this morning as we try to preach your word. God, I sure have enjoyed studying on these thoughts this week. I just pray, Lord, that you'd help us to give it out to your people today in such a way that would honor you and please you. Do that now as only you can, and we'll thank you for all that's accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I want us to look this morning a little bit at the marriage of Joseph and Asneth. And I'm going to call this a strong marriage. This marriage, out of all of the patriarchs' marriages, stands out to me. Now, we're going to look at it a little bit this morning, but first, can I say that out of all of the patriarchs we've learned about so far in the book of Genesis, 
Joseph likely was our least likely candidate to have a good marriage. And I mean, you think about it, betrayed by his brother as brothers as a teenager, sold into slavery. Of course, accused of adultery there in the, ha- in the house of Potiphar. He'd even had a jail record. He's got a record. Everything, all of this happens prior to Joseph being 30 years old. He's been accused of adultery. He's been put in jail. He's been a slave. If we were just to look at it on the surface, we would say Joseph is doomed. Percentage-wise, he doesn't have a very good chance at having a strong marriage. He's an old jailbird, but I'm glad God can take jailbirds and make daddies out of them, amen, and husbands out of them. I'm glad that when God gets involved, you never count it out. You never know what God might do with somebody like this. And Joseph, I'm going to submit to you, will end up having the strongest marriage of any that we've studied on. Now, there's not a lot said about this marriage. Only a few verses here that I read to you is about all that we know. But I think this morning that we can draw some things out of these verses and learn some things and maybe infer just a couple of things without doing any damage to the gospel record about Joseph's marriage. And uh, so I want us to take just a few minutes and think about Joseph and his strong marriage. Number one, can I point out to you this morning the standards that Joseph set. That might interest all of you to know that Joseph married a Gentile. As a matter of fact, as we read to you this morning, he, re- he married the daughter of a pagan priest. Now you might say, well, that doesn't start Joseph out very well. The name Asneth means belonging to the goddess of Neth. This uh, Asneth, she had been raised up in a pagan's home. Uh, pagan religion was all she ever knew. The Egyptians had hundreds of gods that they served a plurality of gods and they had a frog god and a sun god and all of these different gods and that's how Asneth had been brought up. You say that'll never work. It can't work. What happened there? Let me say to you this. I'll tell you what I know to be true from the Bible. I know it. I'm 100% certain. And that is that it's never God's will for a man and a woman to be unequally yoked before they get married. That's never God's will. I'm going to say this. It's never, ever God's will for a Christian man to marry a lost woman or a, a Christian woman to marry a worldly man. That is never God's will. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers uh, uh, for the fellowship, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness. Uh, and so it's hard for me to believe knowing that God's will is never for two unequally yoked people to get married. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that God uh, had Joseph marry a woman that was still a pagan. As a matter of fact, if you'll study Jewish history, you start looking at the midrash of Jewish history. People say, what is midrash of Jewish history? It's kind of like the, uh, it's not Bible, but it's like the history that goes along with the Jewish people. And what they say is that Joseph 
refused to marry. Uh, he, he refused to marry until uh, until Asnath had converted to uh, Jehovah God. That's what Jewish history says. Uh, in other words, when Pharaoh came to Joseph and said, "Here's your bride," uh, Joseph said one condition: uh, she's got to forsake the gods of her father, uh, and she's got to believe in Jehovah God. Uh, otherwise, I will not uh, marry her. Uh, you say, "Well, preacher, there's no indication." in the Bible that that happened. I believe there is. When you look in verses number 51 and 52 of our reading this morning, you'll find that they had two children. One she named Manasseh, and that means God has caused me to forget all my troubles. The other one, Ephraim, which means God has made me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Both places, the word God there is Eliohim. That means Jehovah God. Now, you'll not convince me that a pagan wife would have ever have allowed her children to be named after Jehovah God if she had not, my friend, converted and believed in Jehovah God. And so I believe it. I believe that Joseph held a high standard for his marriage. I believe he insisted on Asnath being, uh, being believing in the God of the Hebrews before he would ever ever marry her. I believe that's an insisting that so there's a standard that he raised. I want you to think about something. Joseph here held a standard even in a hard position. In other words, it was obvious here what Pharaoh's doing. Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian name and he gives Joseph an Egyptian bride. Now there's politics involved. What uh, Pharaoh's trying to do is he's trying to make Joseph seem as an Egyptian. That way, when he puts Joseph on the throne, the Egyptians will take to the idea of him being there and being in charge. He's got an Egyptian name. He's got an Egyptian wife. And so the stakes are high. Joseph's fixing to go to the throne. All he's got to do is go along. But we're told, and I believe, that Joseph said, No, I'm going to take her, but only if. Only if she believes in the God of my fathers. <laughs> Can I say this to you this morning? Uh, standards don't mean much until they're high stakes. <laughs> I'd say, well, I got a standard about this, and I got a standard, but there's, if there's not a risk of it costing me anything, that's just words. The only time your standards ever really mean anything is when there's a risk of you losing something over them. And when a man that says, I've seen a lot of people over the years that say, I'm going to hold this, I'm going to do this, until it came to the point it's going to cost them something. And then suddenly, they weren't so convinced of it after all. And I'm going to tell you, a real standard in your life is going to be something that you're going to hold even when the stakes are high. And so Joseph held a standard. And there was a standard that he held even in the even in the times uh, that were hard and a hard position. But then I believe he continually set a standard uh, for his marriage both prior and then after he got married. Can I say it's one thing for us to hold a standard prior to us getting married. We say, bless goodness, I'm going to marry somebody that's in church. Let me tell you young kids something. Don't even think about somebody that ain't in church. Don't even think about it. 
You say, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get them fixed up. I, no, that, no, you won't. I'm telling you, I've lived this a long time. I've watched it a long If you do it, you're going to be the one of the, the very few that ever influences somebody the other way. 90% of the time, uh, they take you out of church instead of you bringing them in church 90% of the time. So there ought to be some standards before we get married. Well, I will say there's some things that I've, just, I've got a standard. They're going to have to be in church. They're going to have to love God. They're going to have to have a testimony of salvation. These are standards. These are lines I'm not willing to cross. Before I walk an aisle and before I get, before I get married to somebody, they've got, but then there's some standards we ought to keep even after we get married. Now, this doesn't mean holding one another to unrealistic expectations. In other words, regardless of what I do, regardless of how much Rachel prays, I ain't getting no better looking. <laughs> hard to mess with perfection, Dimsdale. Hard to mess with perfection. But we ought to have, we, that we ought to have unrealistic expectations, but we still should hold each other to high standards. In other words, I should expect out of Rachel the very best version of herself and she should expect the same thing out of me. There should be some standards that we hold in our marriages uh, so that we have strong, healthy marriages right on through. Uh, I've been preaching on marriage this entire month of February uh, and y'all know exactly that, uh, that there's been some uh, examples in these other couples that we looked at uh, that they let their standards down and what happened? It ended up being a mess. They ended up having division. They ended up having problems. Uh, God, help us to have high standards not only before we get married but all throughout our marriage so there's the standards he held but then I want you to notice the satisfaction he found I love it love it love it notice the satisfaction that he found you know how most marriages are judged most marriages are best reflected by their children <laughs> I see old Joseph He's a busy businessman. He's collected as much corn as the sand of the sea. Now, that ain't what I said. And that ain't even what Joseph said. That's what the Bible said. I'd say he had a lot of corn. Very much, the Bible said. Very much. I see him during all of that time. Asnath gives him two youngins. And they're the, they're the picture-perfect happy couple. And I see him. Let me borrow it. I know he's eating, but he's going to have to get over it. Come here. <laughs> what is it? Can I borrow that little one too? <laughs> Watch this. Watch this. I see him. He shows up one day. And he's just a tickled to death, proud papa. And uh, somebody said, What's them youngins' names? And he said, Well, this one right here. His name's Manasseh. This is little Manasseh. <laughs> and he said, that one over there, that one's name, Ephraim. Manasseh, that means God had caused him to forget all his troubles. And he said, uh, Ephraim here, oh, every time I, he said, every time I look at little Manasseh, I think, I can't even remember that pit. I can't even remember that prison. He said, every time I look over here at little Ephraim, I think, man, am I blessed. God's made me fruitful. What a fruitful place. 
And everywhere Joseph went, they said, there's one blessed fellow. Look how happy he is. Look how blessed he is. Nobody would have figured that for Joseph. If you'd have watched Joseph down in the prison, you'd have said, he's doomed. He'll never make anything out of his life. He's going to be a jailbird. But look here at Joseph. He's got Manasseh and he's got Ephraim. Now I want to show you something about it. Do I need to preach for these babies the whole time so y'all watch me like this? That's fantastic. Now watch this. Two things it says about their marriage. You know what I know about, you know what I know about naming young'uns? I know that that is normally the mom's job, right? When we, when we had Trey, Rachel said, we was watching football one Sunday and Trey Williams was a, a lineman for the, for the Redskins. She said, oh, I like that name Trey. And you spelled it T-R-E with an apostrophe over it. And I said, well, I like that too. She said, that's what we're going to name him. She told my sister, and my sister said, spell it T-R-E-Y. Because if you spell it T-R-E with an apostrophe over it, the rest of his life, the teachers are going to say, Tree, Mr. Tree. So we changed it to Trey, but it was all her idea. I, I, I came up with the Brooks part. That was it. Gabriel, that's Rachel's idea. Reagan, that might have been mine. Reagan, I liked that, that Reagan. Like that. I mean, you know, he was the greatest president ever. I mean, you got to remember Reagan. But anyway, most of the time, that's the mama's idea. So here's what those babies' names tell me. It tells me they had a, hey, a, a, a marriage, number one, they had a marriage full of forgiveness. Joseph could have held hard feelings to his brothers the rest of his life. Joseph could have been mad at his brothers the rest of his life. But as he's bouncing little Manasseh on his knee and he looks over at Asneth, he said, why do we all of that name him? She said, let's name that one. Let's name that one Manasseh because God doesn't made us forget all them problems you had. Let's just forgive him, young ones. Let's forgive you, brothers. Let's forgive everybody. Let's have a marriage full of forgiveness. Let's forgive one another when we wrong each other. And so they named their first boy Manasseh. God doesn't made me to forget. And I'll tell you something interesting. It's not what I'm preaching on, but it's interesting. Later, when Jacob would go to bless them boys, he crossed them hands. You know why I believe that was? I think when Jacob looked at Manasseh and his name said, God has made me forget, Jacob said, I can't forget it. You know, Jacob never got over the day they brought that bloody coat back into his house. Joseph said, I done forgot it. God has caused me to forget. Let me say this to you. If you're going to have a strong marriage, You've got to have a marriage that's based on for forgiveness because guess what? Neither one of y'all is perfect. I mean, Rachel got close when she married me, but even I got faults. We all do. Me more than most. Huh? And so it takes forgiveness. They had a marriage that's based on it. But then not only was it a 
marriage based on forgiveness, but it was a marriage based on fruitfulness. God, Joseph looked at Ephraim and he said, boy, God hath made me to be fruitful in this land, in the land of my affliction, in the land of Egypt. God has blessed me and caused good things to come my way. Don't you want to have fruitful marriage? You say, well, what does it take? What does it take to be fruitful? Let me give you a couple things right here, and then I'm going to give you my last point, and I'm going to be done. It takes keeping yourself on solid ground spiritually. You know, whether you like to admit it or not, there's a lot of physical aspects to marriage, but the biggest thing is spiritual. If a man will keep himself spiritually where he needs to be and a woman keep herself spiritually where she needs to be, by and large, the marriage will work out pretty good. It doesn't mean you'll never have an argument. It doesn't mean you'll never have a problem. But it does mean that you'll work things through things that others won't be able to work through if you're on solid ground spiritually. It requires for you to keep an open line of communication. you got to talk. It requires that you never allow any single issue to be more important than your relationship. I bought a grill, a big old Austin XL. Brittany helped me with it. She called me and told me it was on sale. And man, I have cooked on that thing. I love it. But it's got one problem. The problem is it's a wood, wood pellet grill. You've got to plug it in the wall, and I don't have an outside plug. So when I'm going to cook on my grill, i got to run an extension cord into the house and plug it on, in on the inside. And so the other night, Rachel said, let's fix steaks. I stopped and got steaks. I came, run my extension cord in, plugged it inside. And, of course, that means the door stays open about this far while I'm cooking. But that's okay. And I got, got the grill started. I cooked the steaks. When we turned the grill off, it's got a cool-down mode it's got to go through. And so while you're in there eating your supper, you got to leave it plugged up. So it goes through its cool-down mode. And what do I always do 100% of the time? I always forget to go unplug the grill and close the door back. Always. So the other night, I went in there and I laid down in the bed. Rachel's going through, I'm hearing her going through, turning off the lights, and then I hear, that ain't never good, folks. And I hear that extension cord flop around, and then I hear the door go, boom, shut. I mean, she didn't shut it easy either. And I thought, uh-oh. She come walking in the bedroom, and before she could get a word out, I said, I figure if I'm going to cook the steaks, the least you can do is go unplug the stinking grill. <laughs> she said, so you think, you think that's my job, do you? She said, it'd been nice if you'd have told me before we heated the world for the last three hours. I'd have went and shut the door. But you know what we decided? Probably wasn't worth arguing about when we went to bed. But you'd be surprised. People start things over something that simple or even simpler than that. You start out in an argument over the grill and somehow an hour later it's because, you know, I don't like your mama. How did it get from, but isn't that how marriage works a lot of times? You end up yelling and screaming at one another. There ain't nothing to do with what you started out screaming at each other about. At some point, you've got to decide 
that your relationship is more important than whatever issue it is you're fighting about. And just go, mm. by the way, men, women always get the last word. And any word that is said after a woman gets the last word is just the start of another argument. That's what that is. That's not the last word. That's the first word of another argument. So the thing to do sometimes is say, hey, my relationship is more important than this issue and I want to have a strong marriage. And so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and not let this get out of hand. Have a fruitful marriage. Let me give you this last one. Not only did he have a standard, not only the satisfaction that he found, but Joseph's marriage was strong because of the Savior that he typified. You know, there's no better, there's no better type of Christ anywhere in the Old Testament than Joseph. He is the most complete type of Christ in the entire Old Testament. You think about all the ways he's a picture of Christ. He was rejected by his brethren the same way that Christ was rejected by Israel. He was wrongly accused, just like Christ. He was left for dead in prison, just like Christ died. But he was resurrected to the throne, just like Christ. He married a Gentile bride, thank God, just like Christ. And then he became the salvation for his brethren, just like one of these days Christ is going to save Israel. And so Joseph is a beautiful picture of Christ. I'll tell you something I learned about this week. Something I never knew. That Egyptian name that Pharaoh gave him, for years, theologians have thought that that name, they, they gave it the Hebrew value, and they thought that Joseph's name meant interpreter of dreams. But there's been some men that have studied hieroglyphics in the, uh, the uh, Egyptian language and started to learn a little bit about the Egyptian language, and they said, no, 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 no. His name that Pharaoh gave him means food of life, or it could be bread of life. Boy, you talk about something that speaks of Christ. When I read that, I thought, mm, boy, hey, what a name, what a name. Let me say this to you. When Jesus is central in your marriage, it's hard to go wrong. Hard to go wrong. We all get in trouble when Jesus is no longer the focal point of our marriages. When my marriage becomes about me, or if my marriage becomes about Rachel, suddenly we're on dangerous ground. The Bible said in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So it is our job, my friend, to have a Christ-centered home and to love the way Christ loved. As a matter of fact, there's another place where we're commanded to love our wives. That's not just one command, it's several commands. And of course, the command comes to ladies to honor and reverence your husband husband in the same way the church reverences Christ and so we are to have a Christ centered marriage and if Christ is the center it's hard to go wrong now don't you think about how Jesus loves I'm getting ready to give an altar call just think about how Jesus loves there's an unconditional love this here is an undeniable command and there's unconditional love but ultimately there was unmerited sacrifice in the end, 
Jesus laid his life down for no merit of our own. Let's think about something. That's the way we're to love our spouse. Unconditional and unmerited. Let me tell you what's common among men. I'm going to give an altar call. What's common among men is that I'll love you as long as you love me. I'll do good to you as long as you do good to me. Any person does that. Lost people do that. But in a marriage where Christ is the center, it is I love you no matter what. Whether you're doing right, whether you're doing wrong. Now, I'll be honest with you. There have been times in our marriage where me and Rachel didn't like each other. I remember, I remember maybe last year or something like that, we'd fussed about something. And I'm always, I'm always the one trying to make up. So I was in there, I was like, well, baby, I love you, baby. <laughs> she looked me dead in the eyeball. She said, I love you too, but I don't like you right now. <laughs> and she said, leave me alone, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> but the understanding is that no matter what we go through, we love each other through it all. And that's the only way to make a marriage work. Ask yourself, cross the center of your home. Have you got a love that's a love no matter what? I've preached now four weeks on the marriage. These marriages in Genesis. There may be some of you young people here this morning and you're at that dating age, and you may, you may need to get around this altar and say, Lord, help me to raise some standards. Help me to know who's right. There may be some of you married couples that need to get around this altar this morning and say, Lord, help us be strong. Maybe some of y'all are dating, and you're dating. You say, Lord, you might need to get around this altar and say, Lord, if it's your will that we get married, help us to have a strong marriage that loves through it all. Whatever your need is, the altar's fixing to open. Let's stand our feet. Father, thankful, Lord God, for the opportunity to preach this morning. I'm thankful, Lord, for good homes, marriages across this building. I just pray, Lord, you touch some hearts, some men and women, Lord, some married couples, some dating couples. I pray you touch some hearts of some unmarried Folks, Lord, that need to hold a standard. Do that as only you can in our midst today. We'll thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Her heads are bowed, her eyes are closed. She's going to sound the instrument. Some have already made their way to the altar. You said, preacher, I want to come. Some of you men coming right now with your wives. Getting around this altar. Some of you teenagers getting around this altar. I'm glad to see some of these teenagers moving. Most important decision you'll ever make in your life. The most important decision you'll ever make in your life, besides getting saved, is who you're going to marry. Still others coming. Well, I want a strong marriage. I want a marriage that loves through it all. Christ, Christ at the center. Loves through it all.
ought to celebrate a 40-year anniversary, a 50-year anniversary. God help.